Please give a warm welcome to the third and final of my rotating co-hosts for TRBM. His name is Eric Norcross, and if you are a completionist and you've listened to every episode of this podcast, you've already heard my first interview with Eric Norcross. I've actually got another one coming up here pretty shortly where we debate some literary-type topics. But today, the guest and the centerpiece of the episode is Ray, the plot hound. If you run into him on Twitter, you no doubt have been impressed with the story engine that is his brain. There was a period there where every single story prompt I put out on Twitter, Ray had my favorite answer, and I just had to keep thinking, we got to get it fresh in here. So the episode I invited him on for couldn't have been a better fit. He's got a background in politics and law and espionage and all kinds of interesting things. This particular story was a delight for me. And even though you don't hear Eric Norcross, my co-host, pitch in too much, he asks the two best questions in the episode and gets a really fun response from Ray. So definitely tune in for those bits. And I want to get you right into the episode now because it's a little bit longer than some. So a reminder, if you haven't bought a copy of my book, you can buy a copy of my book. It's super duper cheap in every format as long as you buy from my website. Everything in the show notes is linked to my website. I'd prefer you buy it from me. You can still consume it on Kindle or your favorite e-reading device, or I will ship a copy to you. And even though it doesn't say that the physical copies are signed, I'm fulfilling them out of my own house. So every copy goes out signed with a tiny little extra gift in there for you when you buy a physical copy of the book. So grab a paperback, grab an ebook, and the audiobook is coming. So if you haven't had your opportunity yet to pre-order the audiobook, you can do that as well. Only $10 for both of them. That's cheaper than a month of Audible, and you get two books. That's worth two credits on Audible in in, in Kaus, in case you're counting. So anyways, do those things. And if you have a copy and you haven't finished reading it, go ahead and rate and review whatever you have read so far. You can even be completely honest in the review and say, hey, I'm still working my way through this, but I wanted to drop a rating and review because the podcast host who wrote this book has been bugging me for months. Go ahead and drop that rating and review on Amazon it might help me to feed my children for another month. And I would really appreciate your cooperation and participation in doing that. Without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Ray the Plot Hound. Like if you've ever watched an author read in public and felt bored, TRBM is the antidote. What's an antidote? Like, I don't know. But TRBM's for writers what time-lapse was for painters. Guitar solos and spotlights were for bands. And what chainsaws and icebox were for sculptors. That's totally movie lover. What does TRBM stand for, though? The real Bible is menacing? Turn right before Macedonia? That's righteous. Or like totally righteous believers manipulate? Do you decide? You are an amazing story idea generator, and you're the plot hound on Twitter, if I'm uh, connecting all of my threads correctly. So I really, I really want to know, how'd you become the plot hound? Tell me that, that story. I'm, I'm excited to hear it. So basically, I've always enjoyed like creating ideas, always 
been like a, a guy who scribbles things into notes and notebooks all my life. I come from a family of visual artists, painters and photographers and whatnot, but never quite had that gift. But, you know, ever since childhood, I've just been into creating story ideas. And when I was a little kid, I tried to make a comic with a friend, that kind of thing. And if it gives you a sense of me, one of my favorite comic books as a boy growing up was What If? Because every month you could go to the spinner rack and people will hand you stories. But then that book was about somebody taking everything you thought you knew and just going in a whole different direction with it. Yeah. And sometimes it was just the most fun ride you know, that people would be like, I actually like that one better. Why don't you go with that? So a few years ago, I decided to, you know, get committed to focusing on writing. And I started with nonfiction. I've got a book I want to get out at the end of this year, one nonfiction book, but everything else has been, you know, just exploring ideas and fiction. And the more I dig into it, the more I'm looking at different genres like horror Mm. and sci-fi. Most of my stuff is sci-fi. And again, it's all built on what if. And the the one main project I've got right now, I was originally creating it as a project for television, was to build out five seasons worth of a single story with a beginning, a middle, and an end, and really lay it out. And it's all based on what's happening today, carried about 40 years into the future, because I, I literally sat in a chair one day and said, what would the world look like a hundred years from when I was born? Mm. And you start to, with that premise, like, you know, and it's not the Jetsons, it's not flying cars, but if yeah. you were to look at what you were like when you were a kid and say, what would 2023 look like? The idea that we're walking around interconnected with phones, with data, with like the knowledge of the world and streaming media But then some of those negative influences, I think David Bowie once did a whole piece about what it would be like to have the internet in your hand. And he didn't like the idea very much. Yeah. And one of the phrases that I've been developing as part of my work is something called social cultivation, which is the whole idea that people can become a crop that it's not like soil and green. It's much as if I want power, if I want influence, if I want to get something out of society for my own personal gain, I'm going to cultivate our tribal nature as people and get things happening the way I want to happen because I can shape the river to go where I want without having to fight the river. Mm. And it, it just opens up things one after another. So when I found you on on Twitter, it was just so much fun because you throw out these amazing prompts and it's like, that's like catnip for me. I just <laughs> dive at them, can't help answering them and just seeing what happens with them. So it's been mutually fun. And thank you for putting them out there all the time. Yeah, you bet. One of the things that I have found that I didn't, this was an unexpected benefit of doing this uh, because before I was so focused on writerly questions. And so I would ask a lot of writer marketing questions and things like that. And I thought I'd like to find a way to get maybe more non-writers interacting with me and especially people who like to read and think about stories. Uh, and, and so this was my, my initial answer was to do these story prompts and create a, a more friendly, open place that didn't feel so exclusively writerish. But in generating these story ideas and interacting with people like you, I've actually gotten faster and better at building my own stories. I didn't expect that to happen because it's not like I'm actually writing any of these ideas out. I have actually thrown out two of my like very stripped down taglines for for books I'm working on just to see how people think about those. 
But that came later when I realized how useful this is at helping you create any idea. When you go into that creative place of saying, what if? Uh, I really, really enjoy that. So it's been fun. And I mean, sincerely, the places you take plots are so crazy. The The comic book, What If, um, I only know of it, the the title anyways, in terms of Marvel comics. Is it another comic or is that the one you're speaking of? No, Marvel. It yeah, is. So again, like Marvel. And, and the advantage of that is you knew the setting, you knew yeah. the starting point. You didn't have to spend a lot of time. They just take one pivotal point and say, what if something else happened? Yeah. And that's why it's great storytelling. It is great storytelling. I want to talk a little bit before we dive into the story about the idea that you have to have foundational material in order to do what if and ask what are the challenges of having to have foundational material? Like you can't tell a what if about Captain America unless you know who Captain America is in Universe 636 or whichever it is. So talk a little bit about the challenges of creating maybe a standalone project of fiction where you can what if it. And do you know what I'm saying? Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. I, I think about that all the time because to use a, a pop culture example, Game of Thrones drops people who never read the books into this land where mm. there's a whole history and a backstory. And the challenge when you're trying to tell that story is how much do you do you have a scrolling crawl like Star Wars? Do you just drop people yeah. in the story and, you know, the stories that I don't enjoy is where you feel force fed. All right. They're really pushing the whole backstory and everyone's just telling you things about what's going on instead of talking mm. like real dialogue. And you pick. So I think part of it is you have to respect the audience. If, if what's happening in the moment is interesting, people will hang on for the ride. Um, and they'll pick up the context as you go. It's almost like joining a new company. You, you haven't been there. You don't know what they're working on. You don't know who, all the players are, but you're going to learn day in, day out. What you do is you just throw yourself into it. And as I used to be a consultant and you just immerse yourself in it and spend more time listening and understanding what's going on. And eventually you find your, your, your sea legs in what the whole context is. So your storytelling, like, again, like the main work I'm looking at doing is set 40 years from now. So I have to establish a lot of what's going on there. And a lot of my, plotting work is laying it out so I know. And now the challenge is open a little slit. How much do I reveal as I go? But Mm -hmm. I owe the person who's paying me for this, like they're giving me their money for a good story. I want to make sure that that story is richly thought out and the Mm -hmm. details are there. And it's almost like if they were to peek at something else, it's already there. Um, So there's a, you know, I, I think the term world building is overused. I think People build great worlds and then don't tell good stories in them. I think you start with a good story, mm. but you've got to give it a good world. Absolutely. So I, I don't think it's exclusive. I think plot and story and characters drive everything, but you owe them the details that make it real. Yeah, that's that's very true. I love that idea, and I resonate with what you're talking about. I wrote a novel, got a literary agent. People on this podcast are probably tired of this story. So I try to keep it as short as possible. Ended up not working, 
I didn't like how things were going. So I let her go and I started looking at, well, if I want to be a full-time writer, I have to be able to publish a lot of great novels um, and people love series. So I took the novel that was agent and started to think, how can I build this out and make it into a bigger world? I've always been a fan of Stephen King and how he connects his worlds. Every book he writes, if you look closely, has a connection to another book he's written. There are, there are cameos and appearances. And I just love how I assume inside of his brain, he actually has an entire universe that exists that is like his world and he knows how it's populated. And maybe we'll find out someday that he's got spreadsheets everywhere that connect all of these things. So I'm trying to borrow from that. And I think that there's something incredibly fun about writing the outline of your world and saying, okay, for this nine book series that I'm now going to write, I need to understand the mythology behind it so that as I start to write these books, I get the inner workings. But in most cases, no one is ever going to see the hundreds of pages that I've written to try to plot out what's happening in the background. That's the because sort of situation. Um, Oh, for sure. And there's one other thought to that too, which is someone gave me a great advice once, which I'd love to share, which is the connection between the world people live in and the world you're trying to give them is emotion. So what you do mm-hmm. is you find the emotional bridge. So if my world has anxiety, if the walking dead has anxiety, what you do is you you bring people in by giving them something to feel anxious about and people can relate to the feeling of anxiety. Um, the sense of wonder, when my mm-hmm. first time at Disney World, my first time in Narnia, it's a sense of wonder, it's something new. So what I think the one thing is, use emotion as a bridge to connect you from our world to your fictional world. And I think people respond to it better as opposed to just throwing it out there. Like give them that hook. Like why should you care about it being great, wonderful, scary, intriguing, horrifying, whatever. That's, Mm -hmm. that's what locks it in. Yeah. Can we talk, can I ask a couple questions about your process? Uh, Sure. Yeah, I'd I, uh, like to know how my process works too. I haven't stopped okay. figuring well, it out. Well, I'm just interested in in the world building aspects for right now. I'll have more questions soon um, because I found, at least for me personally, with my with my writing process, if I overdevelop the world ahead of sitting down and writing these stories, I will be a lot less invested in the story. And so, a lot a lot of the times, at least from a productivity standpoint, I find that I'm more capable of finishing a story if I build the world as I go. Uh, what does your process look like in contrast? That's a great point because I was diagnosed in my 40s with ADHD, never realized what the hell is happening in my head, you know, and then someone stuck a label on it. But it's very easy to be distracted. And like you say, you can go down rabbit holes of building the setting instead of focusing on what's happening in the setting. I, I think I'm driven by the latter point you made, which is something's happening to these people but understanding where it's happening and what's happening around them makes it a little bit more real. What I try to do is be that two-year-old who keeps saying why over and over again. So if there's a scene with tension, why is there tension? And okay, because somebody is potentially a threat, why are they a threat? And then what I do look for is things that feel believable. Um, I'm a fan of politics um, in the sense that there's a theme in what I'm working on that has a lot of politics to it. Why does politics engage people and kind of building a world where there are political movements and how, yeah, I mentioned before people manipulate to gain power. Um, so I spend some time investing in that. Like why do these systems and structures set up? 
um, sometimes you watch these like dystopian shows and they seem a little contrived. And that's like, I think to really get to the answer of your question is there's a line between it feels real and it feels contrived. So I think you have to invest just enough so it feels real. And it's like going to a play on Broadway. Like it's a couple of chairs and a table and the rest of it is black around you. So you don't have to paint everything. You have to paint enough so that room is very real um, and answer the question why, like give them just enough world so that it makes sense. It, it feels legitimate. It doesn't feel contrived, but you don't have to build out beyond that. You know, I agree with you about the dystopian uh, shows that are on these days. Um, it seems like a lot of the writers aren't into politics and, and don't understand how politics work in the world. And so, like you said, they often feel contrived. Uh, and are you, are you interested in politics? You watch the news, you read the news a lot. Uh, very much so. I actually ran for Congress uh, back in 2014 as an independent. Wow. And it's funny because, so I, I didn't want to be part of any party because I, I have my own beliefs, but I feel like when, once you join a team, you're obliged to do what the team says. Mm-hmm. So without getting into which teams I feel more aligned to, it's like you say, no, I'm here. I, I was actually very black and white. I said, this is a job. It's a public service job to do things for the people I live around. And here's what I, I'm looking at it like a job interview. Here's what you need. Here's what I want to do. Here's what I bring to the table. And I actually got on the ballot and three days later, um, both parties teamed up to break three laws to throw me off. So the yeah. funny thing is there, and, and the reason I'm saying that is there are systems that like things just the way they are. And they don't like people who break a system. And that actually influenced a lot of my storytelling because, hmm. you know, once you get to that, I'm, I'm king of the hill, like you put a lot of energy into staying there and less energy into doing the thing you meant to do when you got there. And that's, and it made me realize motivations and such of people. It's like, I really wanted to get there to do X, but once you get there, you're almost in this, like just someone's always going to try and take me out. So I don't have the energy to actually do the things I promised to do. And then you wind up feeling compromised or not giving a damn at all, depending Mm -hmm. on who you are and what your nature is. So going through that was a really great life experience just for the exercise of doing it instead of being on the sideline. Great question, Eric. Thank you. I, uh, we would have never discovered that if you weren't on this show. So, so glad because <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a fascinating detail about your life and, and your story creating process. One other thing I want the two of you to talk about is you've, you mentioned sure. um, Ray, that you had an idea for something for TV. Eric does a lot of video and I'm I'm going back to that idea of what if um, when you translate something from a book to TV or even vice versa, you immediately have the what if. Why do you make this choice to change the way that you tell the story when you put it in video? And I'd just like to hear both of you talk about it because video is not something that I ever work with. I mean, I guess the most natural way I could go into the answer would be to talk about this this Kindle Vela story that I just released this month called vacation land it's been it's something that i've been going back and forth on for almost 20 over 20 years actually oh, i'm old um it started out as a film and it was fine as a film it would have been an action adventure film that would have been low stakes but the stakes were high in the story but it wouldn't have much meaning at all 
Um, and then over the years, it got more complex. There was a time travel component was added to it. And then it became three films. And then it became a TV show. Three seasons, 10 episodes per season. That TV version of it is became a character study more than an action adventure plot. And the thing that's going on on Kindle Vela is prose. It's, it's a story. It's like a novel, an episodic form. And that only works, at least in my opinion, when we're exploring a central character. I cannot write a story in the third person where we have all these different characters that we're exploring. All my stories are first person, at least if they're written, they're first person, present tense, stream of consciousness, because I want to get into the head of the character. And that's really, really hard to do in film. Sometimes it's achieved, uh, especially uh, if it's a book that's written in that like fight club. They did a great job bringing that over to film, but it doesn't always work, especially with certain plots. And so I really compartment everything based on what I want to explore and how I want to explore it. Um, I know that I've tried doing films in that sort of present tense. And I tell you, it bores the shit out of people. But if I give it to them as literature, they power right through it. And so at least that's kind of my answer to that. Mm -hmm. It's kind of amazing, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, for for me, it was two big influences in my life. To get to the answer to your question, the first was in high school. I had a debate teacher, and he would one of his regular drills was you'd be debating something you were passionate about, and then he would snap his fingers, and you had to take the other side. And the idea of forced role reversal basically it makes you and and you had to be good at it. You couldn't just like throw it so your side would win. And the idea of really being able to work different perspectives on the same thing and and understand it and be passionate about it kind of gets ingrained into you. And the second was just, um, I studied some acting um, in New York City uh, in my 20s. And one of the teachers, it's a a simple thing, but he said, actors don't pretend to be something. They They just let that side on themselves out. So if you're a bastard, find your bastard and let it out. You know, find your this and let it out. And that, that wasn't comfortable for me. It wasn't easy for me, but mm. when you start to write and, and think about what if, okay, what if I was selfish? What if I was this? What if I was that? And then just to see if the story works better, switch it, pick another aspect of mm. who, because we're all complex people. And the whole idea is, and that was, I think, part of the whole idea of Marvel's what if, you know what Captain America would do, but what if he just made a different choice because he was feeling something different? It's still him, mm-hmm. but what if he did something different for a different motivation and a whole nother possibility opens up. So I, I just think that that sense of being able to pivot and see which one you like better just sticks with you. Love it. It's a perfect segue into the storytelling uh, element of this podcast. So I have tried different ways to enter into it. And I'm finding that the best way for us to tell the most compelling story that people love to listen to and enjoy is when you have the authority to change the story as you see fit during the flow of things. So you're the guest, Ray. It's your story. But either Eric or I may jump in with a plot twist that we think would be fun to explore. We're not going to tell it in its most theatrical version, which is you don't have to worry about the setting and those elements if you don't want to. Really, we're just, we're looking for like the story structure. You don't even have to do dialogue unless you feel like possessed to do that. That's great. Whatever you're comfortable doing, 
So I tweeted out, uh, everyone knows President David J. Bernard's heart attack, air quotes for people who aren't watching, was an assassination cover-up. Now there's proof, but bringing it to the public is going to cost innocents their lives. You're one of three people with details. If you stay quiet, no danger. Do you sit on it or speak out? Uh, I loved your response, and I even more love that Eric asked you the political question before he even knew what tweet we were going to be talking about today, because it turns out you have a small amount of experience in the political arena. Um, so take it away from here. You can go from your your original response, or you can mix it up right now and go any way you want with this story. Um, the microphone is is yours. Well, thanks. Yeah, the when I read that, my original response was like the dark twist on that. And it turned out that what if President Bernard was this really despicable authoritarian type person who wasn't good for the country and people who were trying to assassinate him weren't enemies of America, but people who actually paradoxically were trying to save the country in their own mind, the way people tried to kill Hitler back in World mm -hmm. War II. So you, you now have a situation where you've got a figure in charge of the country, people who were trying to change that. But, you know, again, me being in this observational seat where like I'm close to the president and one of the few people who knows the truth, like is assassination the way that you actually save a country? Is this going to just steamroll it and make it worse? And I, I thought about that after we spoke and tweeted and, you know, how, what would I be like, how would I be someone who would know this? And I thought, all right, well, maybe what if I was like a deputy chief of staff, you know, there are people who have to be around the president all the time. They're, they're just, you know, there and they're almost like in the background. And maybe I'm somebody who actually isn't happy with, you know, I, I was all team Bernard and, you know, ready for this. And again, to ironically, this goes back to my point before, some people, they get into power and then it's all about how do I stay here? Not do I do the thing I promised to do? Am I more obsessed with staying here? Or is the way I thought you'd do it so different than how you're doing it? It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, this is, this is not the road I wanted to go down. And I remember reading about people in recent administrations, you know, it doesn't even matter the party. Sometimes people feel this motivation. Do I leave because it's not what I feel in my heart or do I stay to try and steer it towards the way I think sh things should be? So people have a goal for themselves. Like, do I want to be a fixer or, or a, a walk away and make my statement that way? Hmm. So I had decided that I didn't like Bernard either. I'm, I'm here. I'm staying close. I have, you know, unparalleled access to what's actually going on to me like being in the room is important um more so than walking away and that maybe i've been leaking some details of things like i want i don't want him and i want him out and my idea is to build a case build like that smoking gun of the things that people would finally push back against but he's a master of propaganda and Again, the irony is, you know, we've seen this day in, day out, the cynicism that builds where it seems like people can do the most despicable things. And after a while, it just fades out of the news cycle. It's like on to the next crazy news story where people don't care um, long enough to get mad about anything. You just flood people on social media with outrage, and then you're not outraged about anything because you're outraged about everything. Yep. And it just makes you feel like okay, when everyone's distracted, how do you actually 
affect something because this is serious. This is a, a per now we've gotten to actual assassination and people trying to kill people and triggering wars and everything else. So I was thinking about what would I do in my role? Because now I'm part, I realized that part of how they got so close to even be able to try this is probably because of some of the things I've been leaking. So I'm part mm. of the problem. And I have to decide how I'm going to deal with this. And, and because I guess I'm thinking in the vein of a political thriller, smart politicians, smart resistances, you're never talking to the principles. They always keep things at mm-hmm. like separation of distances. So if the person you're talking with is picked up, they're five degrees away from the people who are actually pulling the strings. Mm. So I'm realizing that I'm not even able to go back to the people in the resistance and say, enough, stop. This isn't going to work. He's on to you. And this isn't how it's going to play. If you, if you want this, then I, I will actually out you guys. But I realized, you know, and this goes back to your original prompt, telling the truth will put a lot of innocent people, people who had nothing yeah. to do with this intrigue at risk. And again, I've got a conscience and that's part of my, I think the weakness in all of this. So in terms of building a story, it's like, how do you, the most amoral cynical system is the system you're trying to change. And if you have a conscience and actually care about people and not just view them as collateral damage, like, does it paralyze you? Um, And it's, it's just like a huge runaway train. Plus if you actually assassinate someone you think is despicable but other people love you wind up creating martyrs Mm -hmm. um you don't necessarily get the thing you want if you just take someone off the board i'm uh have to apologize i don't know history as well as i would want to but i the only Mm -hmm. positive outcome of an assassination or assassination attempt that i can think of or at least that i think i can think of is with chile um i believe that they they had a coup and an assassination that did lead to um what is now considered like the safest country in south america and a place where you have a pretty open transparent government and people with a lot of uh freedoms compared to other places in in south america so that would be the one time where i can see a positive outcome to an assassination i'm also thinking about People like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, though, uh, and and others who almost succeeded in assassinating Hitler and wondering what what if what if so. Right. Yeah, right. So part of me does then Absolutely. want to explore this story in that vein. Uh, and and because we have you on the show, maybe we tell like the bare bones version of this story if you don't assassinate him or if you allow it to happen. And if I'm understanding your setup, basically your involvement is if you don't say anything, then maybe the assassination ends up being successful. Whereas if you blow the the whistle, then the assassination is not successful either way. It'd be fun. I think to try to tell both of these stories. Well, and I think that poll what if is part of what drives the character, because I think being mm-hmm. someone who's politically astute enough to make it to that level of government uh, even as an as an admin person, you've got an awareness of what really goes on. And I think the big thing, the big thing to get the reader to understand is that there's a difference between people and movements. And a very charismatic person at the right time can create a movement, start a movement, attract a movement. But after a while, the movement has its own inertia without the person. And to use an example, like people think Trump is MAGA. But to be honest, if Donald Trump like vanished tomorrow, that whole 
movement, that momentum is there. Mm -hmm. And it becomes something where other people will look to co-opt it and, and use that going forward. The same thing with progressives. You know, you could say this person or that person is the face of this movement. But if that person suddenly had a heart attack um, or fell down an elevator shaft, other people would still go in there. Like the movement isn't going to go away once it gets its own momentum. It's like a wave. So the idea is, um, and there was a phrase I used in some of my writing, you've heard that trope about a butterfly starting a hurricane, you know, mm -hmm. where, by beating its wings in Africa. Well, you know, charismatic figures are just butterflies. It's like people are trying to steer the hurricane mm -hmm. at that point. Like, you know, it's, it doesn't matter once, once it's been started, you know, mm -hmm. the butterfly could be stepped on five minutes later. So the idea is now you're dealing with, movements that are going to move on whether the resistance is still intact or whether the president is still intact and it becomes a different kind of thing so you know as i'm saying this and this is going to be kind of ironic a lot of what drives people is you also have rational people who work with facts and you know information and make okay if i do this this is the outcome and this is a good thing or a bad thing so i won't do it and then you've got people who they're making very important decisions without any regard for fact. And this is the world we're living in, and which frankly gives me anxiety. And <laughs> the one thing I thought about is that my character is deciding, okay, I'm powerless to actually do anything to change the president. I'm powerless to stop this resistance because I can't reach the people making the decisions. So I've decided to, the one thing I have in my power is to start my own movement and basically just like you've heard of like q this whole conspiracy online i've decided to create something called like like a play on the deep state like the deep field where everything's deep state man and <laughs> like there's this thing and that thing and what i'm doing is i'm seeding with five percent of truth that people can actually verify independently mm. and 95 percent bullshit <laughs> and it really doesn't matter what the 95% is because that little anchor of reality makes people say they're justified in believing whatever. And what I'm doing is mm -hmm. I'm basically, I'm just trying to call out the players. I'm trying to basically show that what's really going on, but by painting it as a conspiracy, that's mostly fictional. No one can actually pin it to me or anyone else, but anytime now, if, if, the president starts to do some of the things that I said in my BS board, my deep field board. If he starts to do some of the things I say he's out to do, they're going to be aha mm -hmm. and call him out. And, and I've generated like this, like conspiracy, conspiracy outrage that pushes back and holds him in check. If the resistance tries to go too far, I'll actually say, yeah, it was the resistance. They're trying to do this, but I'm not going to call them the resistance. It's just going to be this other players in the deep field of deep state players. And anything that happens to him, every heart attack, if he if he burps, they're going to say, ah, someone's trying to kill him. And that's going to hold them in check. And the idea is I'm basically, I'm, I'm fighting fire with like pretend fire extinguishers, but for some strange reason, it's working. <laughs> and the problem with it is, you know, so it's almost like a farcical comedy. I mean, you could actually write this as a comedy then, you know, yeah. there's different ways the genre could go. But the idea is, you know, now if you want to throw in a what if, 
one day then I, and it's actually working. Like I'm not playing this to win. And I think that's the one difference because I'm not a selfish character. I'm just trying to stop everything from blowing up. I'm not playing to win. I'm playing so that you don't win. I'm playing so mm-hmm. that like, as long as I keep you from winning, that's, that's good enough. You know, it's like a draw in chess. So that was my game and it seems to be working. And then one day I wake up and I'm locked out of all my accounts. Someone has hacked me. Wow. And I can't get in and I can't do the things I've been doing. And so not only has someone found me, they've locked me out of my own beast. And now it's like the genie's out of the bottle. He's locked me in the bottle and all I can do is step back and watch. Yeah. This is so funny to me. Um, It feels a little bit in a weird way, like we're echoing back to earlier in the episode, talking about building the structure behind the structure, because that moment that you just stated feels like the beginning of the story in a lot of ways. It's you have all of the history leading up to it, but it's the moment where things have been going fairly well for you. You've present, you've prevented uh, chaos from breaking out in what I also want to say is a really disturbing, uncomfortable way for me, like to use dishonesty for mostly positive means still is dishonesty. And that like part of me is like, Oh no, you can't use lies in a good way. That's a fun theme to explore. I think. Yeah. Um, so I, I think you're dead on because they're going to kill because it's a noble killing. I'm going to lie and be yeah. man- you know, manipulative because it's for a noble reason. Like what makes any of us good? Like I'm, I'm basically yeah. no better than the assassin. Yeah, exactly. And that's really uncomfortable. It's uh, it's one of the deeper themes that ration- I struggle with. Yeah, we rationalize, we rationalize our behavior. stuff to ours always. Mm-hmm. It's amazing how we do that. that. That would be a good moment in the story for someone like the protagonist trusts to call out their bullshit. It's like, you are exactly mm-hmm. just as bad as Brennan. You are exactly as bad as them. You just picked up a different weapon but you're, you're exact, you know, and what are you doing? You're a power player on the board now in your own, like, self. you know, you think you're noble, but you're just the same shit as them. And and then the funny thing is now this goes right to your point. If someone took my toy away, would I say, okay, as long as it stays that way, I'm happy. Or would I want, Mm -hmm. would I now be like, no, I want my toy back. It's like Golem with the ring. It's like, give me back my precious yeah, exactly. You know, and that would be an interesting pivot. Like, do I do I let it go, or do I do I suddenly know I have to have that back now? There's a there's a whole group of um, now I would call them like celebrity businessmen who uh, talk about if you took away everything from me today, uh, I could rebuild it and have it all back in 30 days or something like that. I don't know what the exact time period is, but there are a lot of them out there that are advertising to impressionable young men like myself. And they're like, hey, you can make a million dollars. I'll teach you how you can get it all back. Uh, and this is what I would do. But I think that there's also an element of truth behind that, that the powerful people have learned the 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 function behind lever pulling. And so if you take it away from them, they'll just go pull levers elsewhere. Uh, not to talk too much about Trump, but he's a guy like that. He's a guy who's had everything taken from him on multiple occasions, but because he understands the function of lever pulling, he just keeps showing up over and over and right. over again. Trump's greatest talent. And again, just to talk for a second, he's a marketer. He knows how right. to create something that has a value in people's minds that they want to uh, pay for, you know, you know, with boats or dollars or whatever. And that that's a skill. You could say whether it's used for good or not good or whatever. 
Um, and I've seen tweets like just the other day, I saw that tweet, like if I took a billionaire and dropped him in a foreign country with $5 in his pocket, he'll be a billionaire within a year. Yeah. You know, part of me just, I'm suspect of that because I think some people did, they made great choices in circumstances and wound up where they were, but like, is it really innately them or, you know, sometimes are we just in the right place at the right time with the right attitude yeah. to know what to do with it? Probably a little bit of both. I have to imagine that there is some, there's, there's a, I think of the Richard Bachman pseudonym for Stephen King. Um, and uh, he had one book that did quite well before they were on to him. And so in one sense, yes, he knows how to tell a story, but Bachman until, until he was outed as being Stephen King never reached the the heights that Stephen King did. Although he was also hobbled because he couldn't go out and do readings or any kind of like building of a public persona. But that's, that's the same hobbling as dropping into a foreign country. So I don't know. That's a, I'm intrigued by that. I, I think both things are probably true to a degree. Yeah. I, I think if you've got an innate like hustle and if you've got charisma, I think I, I work with people in business. I'm still like an IT professional to pay the bills right now. And I see people of immense talent, but they're not the ones who get up on the stage and talk and lead and pull you know, it takes all the different skills and all the different personalities to make a bigger organization work. But then some skills, like, again, like charisma, persuasion, leading, those are the people who inevitably move up. So I think if that's your skill set, you can do well in most scenarios you're dropped into. But again, I also think those are people who work through other people to get things done. So sometimes like, what if that person had to just make it on their own without being able to sort of lead a group of people? Yeah. That's the trick. So I like, I like this idea. And this is where I want to drive the story is you are locked out of the system you built and you see two opportunities. One is to try to regain your system. The other is to try to rebuild another system because, well, gosh darn it, you know how to do it. I want to pursue the try to build another system and make that argument for it failing. I want to, I want to see you fail at it uh, and kind of have the existential crisis moment of realizing, oh, I caught lightning by the tail the last time and this time it's not storming. So. Yeah. And, and it's funny because, you know, it reminds me, even the way you phrased it perfectly reminds me of the dot-com boom right around the year 2000, where, you know, people would have these amazing internet ideas. Let's do this on the internet and then all of a sudden, like you might succeed at one company, sell it, and then start your next company and crash and burn at it. Mm -hmm. And you'd wonder like, what was different the second or third time? And, you know, was it just that I was there at that right moment in time? So in the sense of the story, it's like, yeah, I decide, okay, I'm not going to find the entities that hacked me out. And if they could do it, they're going to do it again. So I'm going to just go back in and, and basically maybe change my approach up a little bit and, and try to call the whole thing out as a scam and a sham and, and try and go like the ex, the expose route where, you know, I'm going to be like the internet sleuth. And you get a lot of these people like I'm exposing the truth behind X mm -hmm. and nobody's believing it. And I think because again, partly we've become so cynical and there are so many other players always trying to call out the real truth behind it. You, you, you're just dealing like, and I have kids who are in their twenties now and it's amazing how cynical and jaded 
um, a generation can be because they've just been saturated with bullshit from a fire hose for a half of their you know lives by now. So you just filter everything that way. And mm-hmm. I think you, you have this crisis of what is authentic anymore, especially if you're seeing it online. So what's happening is trying to do this now to fight. I'm, I'm experiencing two things. I'm experiencing the failure of trying to convince anyone that anything is actually happening or not happening because it's always a game of manipulation. And I'm starting to question what, what's my damn motivation anymore. I mean, basically we're not in world war three, the president's in check, the resistance is in check. So why is this like obsessing me so damn much? And I can't let it go. And I think part of it is because I finally had that sense of feeling meaningful. Mm. And, And I think when I was a kid in high school, in, in real life, I was not one of the actors on the stage. I was the stage manager. I loved being part of the crew, but wearing the black where no one noticed who you were, but you were indispensable to getting things done. And I think there's a part of that that I would be letting out in this role, mm-hmm. in this character saying like, he's, that's why he was assistant chief of staff. Absolutely could like nudge and guide and, you know, or decide what papers the president didn't see or did see and influence that way. Yeah. And I've, I've come to accept that, you know, there's a need for that. It's almost like um, breaking bad. Like, you know, Heisenberg realized is there was that part of him that was always there to reach that potential and, you know, in a very dark way. And I think in this, this is a different way where it's like that, that come to, come to see yourself in the mirror for your flawed self. Like there is a need to feel in control, a need to feel like a puppet string puller and not a puppet (laughs) being pulled. Mm -hmm. And that's the part I'm not able to let go. And I think the failure is actually going to drive me more to an extreme. Like I can't, I can't just retire and sit back and say good enough. And I think there's this obsession that starts to kick in now and possibly even taking me to wanting to break things that, you know, it's not enough to sit back and watch other people do it. Um, It's that I'm either going to be a player or I'm going to flip over the board and nobody gets to play. I love, and there's, I love the, 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 the like subtle, but just available jealousy at nobody. You don't even know who to be mad at in this particular story. You're telling somebody locked you out, but you don't know who. And so you have, you have jealousy and you have revenge feelings, but you don't know who to take your revenge on. And I, I think that that is like, has to be one of the worst kinds of cancer. Revenge itself is a kind of cancer, but having an aimless revenge would be like the most malignant form of a cancer that you could have because you you have to take it out on somebody somewhere if you are that kind of a person. Uh, That's a fascinating element to this story that I'm really digging. Well, yeah, you got me thinking weirdly about Occupy Wall Street (laughs) and how you had all these sort of quote unquote journalists who are really just people who figured out how to use social media to document it on the day-to-day, they blew up. And a couple of them managed to matriculate into mainstream media and still are growing their followings. But so many of them, they ended with Occupy Wall Street. And my mind is drawing a parallel between what you're talking about and this, where they had no control over it ending, or maybe they did, and they just didn't know how to do it. Um, 
but I, but I like that. I, I like that idea and exploring that idea where, where you, you've been pushed out. You don't know who did it. And I think with some of these, these journalists, or well, maybe some of them were just journalism or communication students, they didn't do it to themselves and the movement didn't do it to them. It was just that this thing ended with an NYPD raid on Zuccotti Park. That was the end of Occupy Wall Street. And then all these people were just out. And it was only a select few that, that are still kind of doing this. Some of them are now following progressive movements. Some of them went the other way. <laughs> um, but yeah, I don't know. That, that parallel makes sense to me. Well, you know, it's funny. As you said that, something popped into my mind where there was a phrase in the Soviet Union called useful idiot. If you were like an, an, an apparatchnik of the government and you did what the government wanted, and like again, like a piece, a pawn, you were a useful idiot. To me, like if I was this character climbing my way up, being part of the room in the White House, and then, you know, starting this whole major movement, even if it was ripped out of my hands, um, to be thought of by the person who stole it from me, from by these movements, that I was just a useful idiot. I built them a nice toy and they decided, oh, I like that. I'm going to take that. And that would be like the N word for someone who aspires to power and influence and control and to be, to be a player, not played to be called, well, no, you were just a useful idiot and we got what we needed from you. That would be like the most devastating thing <laughs> that could like, that you would see yourself as. And that to your point, uh, Jody would drive anger. Like again, oh, yeah. but at who, Nuclear. at what, you know, at, yeah. You know, like nuclear anger, because it's almost like being sent to hell. Like you found out, no, this is just hell. You're you're someone who thought he was important. And now, you know, you're sentenced to an eternity of role-playing powerlessness, you know. Oh. And, you know, just when you thought you had power, you were really nothing. That would be torture for someone like that. Oh, I've, I've, have a, I've had a version of that happen to me in a job interview context where this past summer, I was, I went through several months of a really intense interview process to run film production for a media company here in the city. And of course I didn't get it. And um, when I, I found out though, through the recruiter that, Oh, well, it turns out they had somebody, but they needed to, they needed to match that person up with somebody so that they looked better to the hiring people. And I'm like, you motherfucker. Well, I don't know if you're an R-rated podcast, bro, yeah, but yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I think it warrants the F-bomb. Yeah. Oh, man. That's that brutal. brutal. That is mm -hmm. brutal. Okay. So it's confession time for me then, actually, because I had a guy that I worked with when I was managing um, and we were put into this merger situation where they wanted me to, to get another guy promoted, but I had my guy, I had my guy and I did that. I went through a process with people in the merger and created the appearance of fairness. And I knew all along who I was going to choose. I, 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 looking back on it, we talked in this, this podcast episode about justifying things. I felt so right in my decision. And then you tell that story and I realized, wow, what, what would it have been like to be the other guy in this situation? Oh my gosh. Wow. It's hard though, because when you're in that position of power, you really want to build 
the people around you. So you know that you're all working efficiently together. I I assume that the person you selected, you know, you could work with well. Um, It makes sense for me as a director. I want to work with my friends at the same time. It's not good for everybody else. (laughs) Exactly. It's a a horrible thing. It's, It's certainly not moral, whether, whether it's right or wrong, I guess I don't know, but yeah. Wow. Thanks for shedding a new light on my assholeish self. <laughs> We're no, all you, assholes. And yet you're both talking to the same bigger point. Sometimes the game is rigged when you enter the room. You know, yeah. you didn't even realize that you were just there to play a part in something that was already set up. You know, it's like that game mousetrap. It's like you think you're building it. No, you were just that little part of the pieces. I just need you to be right there at that time to make this happen. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's funny that way. Like that's... Sometimes when I think of stories, you, you, Eric, you've been mentioning before, like, do you work on the story? Do you get lost in the backstory? And sometimes that's where my ADD takes me, where it's like, I get caught up back in the, like, what, what were people setting up, you know, that, like, they're building a room and things are happening in the room, but I always think about the people building the room, you know, and what, what was even driving them to do this? Because right now, like, even in the story we're talking about, I don't know who took my control away. Like who is who are that other set of players that took what I built, stole it because it was useful to them, dismissed me utterly. Like I'm I'm like not even a threat to take out. I'm just like, thanks. And you know, are they a state? Are they another party? Are they something else? Could it be, you know, literally just a bunch of hackers trying to do something for the thrill of it? Because just it just be like, like you know, a, lazy. a buffooned IT guy who just fucked up somewhere. <laughs> Doesn't even know he made the mistake. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, see, you like, never got the like, ransom note, did you? You just. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, ironically, wouldn't that be a freaking great twist? Where like one of the most major players in the world is a bunch of like stone stackers who just they just do this stuff for kicks. And like this was like a nice toy, like hey, let's be these guys for like a week, you know. And and they just did it because they could, and they have no motivation. They're just there. I think that's probably the most realistic, simply because I think most things people perceive as conspiracies are just public servants not giving a fuck. <laughs> yeah. Well, and and like you said, like part of conspiracy is just seeing things that aren't even there. Sometimes it is just what it is. And then we read deeper meaning into things, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, and it's just maybe just a bunch of bored guys who like to play with other people's toys. Cause they can, you know, it's, it's amazing stuff. <laughs> I mean, you know, and, and this goes back Jody to like, where one thing I keep doing is oscillating genres. Like when I pivot the stories I think of, I think, mm-hmm. okay, what if this was a horror? What if this was a comedy? What if it was a drama? This one in my mind, every time I keep hearing you guys talk, it's like, is this like a like a human comedy or right. is it like uh, don't look up? I think of, you know, where like I just watched um, Greenland the other day. Um, so it's the whole asteroid about to hit the world. And that's like a serious family drama. And then you have don't look up where it's the same thing, but it's like mm-hmm. a dark human comedy. So yeah. it's like you could just keep taking the same situation and dancing it either way. And either way can be a very good story. Yeah. So a couple of things. One is I really identify with with your process toward this. The book series that I'm writing, you, and I even talked to my wife about this, and she was like, I don't know if I can get on board with it. The first book is just very traditionally noir, hard-boiled detective mystery. And there's a, a book way later in the series Um 
that's called the three course meal of a cannibal at midnight. And I, I already perceive of this story as being a horror story that sits toward the end of the, the series. And my wife's like, nobody's going to want to read about a cannibal if they've been reading hard boiled detective fiction. And I was like, I'm going to figure it out. I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I love jumping genres and changing storytelling styles. And I, I don't know if there's a need for me out there where I can make a living doing that kind of thing, but it's the only thing that really fascinates me. I can't stay in one lane. I do want to tell a big story, but yeah, it's um, there's like a Confederacy of dunces is so satisfying as mm-hmm. is uh, Dennis Lehane telling essentially the same buffoon story, but from a really dark gritty perspective. It would almost be like you know, there's that old plot trope where like something happens and you have five witnesses, so you have five different, you know, takes on it. It would almost be like a story where someone's murdered and now you have five books written from the perspective of each witness, but one is a comedy, one's a yes. horror, one's a this, That'd be one's awesome. a that. That's a really cool idea. Well, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Just weird stuff out there. But, you know, this is the thing now. You know, in all honesty, I think my my biggest challenge has been like focusing enough to work through the conclusion of one of these things. I mean, mm. God knows, like how many people say I've, I'm I'm forever writing, never finishing. Mm. You know, but it's that's why I, I picked something where I wanted my stories to have an ending, and then I can kind of work towards that. Otherwise, it's like the home the model railroad that you never finish building. Yeah. And the irony is, is that this is a perfect spot to jump out of the story, leaving it unfinished. There is no conclusion. We've we've set up all of the blocks. We've driven it a little bit further downstream. Anybody listening that wants to take it in their own direction and write it, if you are so inspired, you're free to do that. Every story we tell on the podcast is free to write in any way that you want and pursue publication, fame, and fortune. Um <laughs> Anybody on the podcast could also tell the story and, and do the same thing. So that's the fun bit of this. Um, what I would like to leave the listeners with, Ray, is a way to get in touch with you, how you want them to interact with you. And uh, give me give me one more roundup of the nonfiction book that you're working on that it sounds like you're, you're getting close to uh, moving forward with. The nonfiction is actually a book about religion. I was raised as okay. a, a devout Roman Catholic, and you go through a process... As, as you go through high school and college and you learn critical thinking, you start to look at your faith through the lens of reason and logic and trying to reconcile it. So really what it is, is if you're familiar with like the Christian story, Martin Luther took a set of you know 99 deep questions about what the church should or shouldn't be and put them on the door of a cathedral. So I decided, what about a book of questions that I asked myself and other people asked themselves? So it's not so much saying, taking any hard stake is saying, these are the things that I went through and the questions I asked myself. So um, the title is actually a questionable book, you know, because Mm. when you go through doubting the faith you were raised in, it's, you know, it can be a little challenging, especially to the, the people in your family who have a tight belief. So that's why it's like what I would call like very hard nonfiction. It's just taking something very real that most people experience and just having a relatable process and that's why I think in some ways fiction's a lot easier. Yeah, fiction so fiction you... coming out first. Cool. Do you know when it's you're coming out? To you're no, you're totally fine. Um I No, I, not yet. Okay. 
I like the idea of it. I uh, I have a religious background. Everybody listening to the podcast knows I have a religious background. And I, I actually am in a place in my life where I kind of play both sides a little bit. Every once in a while, I find myself getting religious for the comfort of it. Uh, and every once in a while, I kind of rage against it publicly. <laughs> it's, a, it's a strange, strange thing. Um, logically, rationally, I have a hard time thinking that there's not eternity, but I also have a really hard time thinking that there's one particular path that would work out um, functionally across all time. I'm always thinking about religion, but I, I hate starting to talk too much about it because people state their opinions and I <laughs> don't know what to do with that. <laughs> it, it's a challenging topic, even for myself, yeah. um, because at different points in my life, I felt different things. And I think that's part of the theme of putting it in a book form is to say it's, it's an ongoing process of personal yeah. discovery. Um, someone once wrote, there's no such every religion is a personal religion. There is no religion you belong to as much as you, your religion is yours and you constantly discover it within yourself as you move through life. Yeah. Well put. Yes, indeed. I have, I have one question before we uh, bail on this. <laughs> uh, this is something I would ask if you were on my show and as a, as, just as a curious person when it comes to writing and practice, how do you make time to write? Um, in small bursts, to be honest. Um, in fact, once I really, once technology kind of caught up where like I was very bad with paper notes and notebooks, like when I was younger, but <clears throat> being able to carry my phone around for years now like when something hits me, I immediately grab it, dictate it, capture it. And then you start to structure and organize it. And sometimes it's just a phrase, an idea, like the name of someone or something that I've been stuck on. Other times it's a whole plot. Um, and, and sometimes it just hits you like a stream of consciousness. Uh, I love the show uh, Star Trek Strange New Worlds. When they announced it, um, about a year and a half ago, I was like, oh, I'm looking forward to this. And just the thought of it made me think of like old Star Trek stories. And I wound up writing six episodes just for the fun of it, <laughs> you know, which again, horrible distraction. Like, you know, you're supposed to get your book done. Stop this. But I think they're just fun stories. And, and it was just this pure stream. So what I'm going to do is that's something I'm never really going to be able to sell to them. They have, you know, they're pretty much preset writing rooms you know they've got their staff they've got they know where they're taking it so the idea is i'm going to take those elements and repurpose that into other things i'm working on so it's almost like building part of a piece of furniture and then built incorporating it into another piece of furniture so to, the quick answer to your question is it's i just build widgets and then at some point the widgets start getting assembled into something like more structured hmm. great answer so you Thank are you. at the plot hound. Is that correct on, on Twitter? Yeah. Plot hound creative. And um, people can reach me there or on a Gmail as plot hound creative at gmail.com. And I'd, I'd love to engage with people and I'm having, Perfect. you know, part of why I'm there is just to release and free associate and like get a break when I need a break, but I'm, I'm loving the community of people that I'm interacting with. It's, it's just been a very fulfilling ride. Yeah. Awesome. And I this really was... appreciate this opportunity. This is, this is new and I'm enjoying it tremendously. Yeah, me too. Absolutely. I'm, I'm really excited to uh, 
share it with the listeners. People are going to love it. It's been so much fun. I liked podcasting the whole last year when I was talking about marketing books. It was fun. I felt like I had a mission and a purpose, but I, every single time I get on a podcast right now, I think this is not only is it incredibly fun for me, but I, I just feel invigorated by it. So thank you for sharing a story with me. And uh, I look forward to pushing people your way and hearing more about your books as they they come out. So get to finishing some stuff, Ray. <laughs> get to back to work, Ray. Thank you for listening to TRBM. The theme music was provided by the ever-talented Christopher Talon. And hey, if you liked what you heard, share this show with other readers because what's the point of telling stories if nobody's listening?